Good evening, everyone. You're listening to Indigenous Flame. I'm your host, Johnny J, and we'll be getting started in just a few moments. Um, so go ahead, get settled in, kick back, get something to drink, get some snacks, because we have a great guest today, and I am super excited. Um, you know, I really love doing these Twitter spaces because we get to know so many different natives who are out there doing great things and then also we also get to just discuss things that are happening within Indian country that we kind of just want to rant about so you know I really enjoy doing these Twitter spaces so thank you all for joining and I hope that you enjoy them as much as I enjoy doing them um, and we have our guest with us so I guess we'll go ahead and get started now um could you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about yourself? And it'll just be a little lag because I forgot to approve them for joining. So let's see here. Okay, do I have you now? Yes, you do. All right. <laughs> Could you tell our listener a little about yourself um, and, you know, just kind of fill them in on who you are? Sure. Well, thank you first for having me. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, sorry, I'm a little nervous, so I'll try not to, you know, spill over my words. Um, my name is Yudu Uish. It means angry basket in Coast Miwok. That's a story for another day. Um, I'm Coast Miwok in Kishaya Pomo and a member of the Federate Indians of Great Rancheria which is located in the Northeast Bay Area by Marin and Sonoma County. Um, I am an author and a poet, an editor, and ghostwriter, activist, and paralegal. Um, I just incorporated Bear Tracks uh, Publishing and News Corporation, um, which is a publishing company that I am trying to use to focus on issues such as MMIW and MMIP and disenrollment. Um, we like to, we want to be able to give a voice to the silenced. And that's absolutely what we need, especially when it comes to tribal disenrollment. Um, we've been discussing that quite a bit. Um, we've talked with Gabe Galanda as well as Cam Foreman. And I know that you're the co-founder of Stop Tribal Genocide. So could you please tell our listeners a little about that movement? Uh, Stop. Tribal Genocide was uh, started um, with um, a, a couple friends of mine, Amelia Reyes, and um, we had, uh, he is actually, he started it and came to me and asked if I would like to uh, help, uh, help be a part of the movement, which is just basically uh, working towards stopping uh, disenrollment. He wanted somebody that was from a California Indian tribe and a gaming tribe. And so that's basically what we've been doing is just trying to stop uh, disenrollment and spread the word. And it's really hard to get the word out about disenrollment because so many people have such a um, skewed perspective of what it means to be disenrolled. Um, and it's a really complicated issue. You know, I've really enjoyed the conversations that I've had with Cam and um, Gabe Galanda Um mainly because here in California, disenrollment is such a widespread practice. And 
no one is talking about the impact that it has on, you know, the Californian tribes that are here. And I think a lot of that has to do with the erasure of California tribes when it comes to talking about indigenous history. Um, could you kind of shed some light on that erasure that happens? Yes, actually, um, my tribe is the first tribe in the nation that actually has put a disenrollment clause in our constitution, as well as our compact with the state government. So um, none of my children, grandchildren, and so forth will ever be disenrolled. So I hope that other tribes can look at that and find and use that um, as a as a door to to stop doing that to to their people. Um, California Indian history is uh, precarious. Um, you know, we had the Spanish land here when California was part of Mexico and, um, you know, the colonization that went through that along with the missions and then the gold rush. And then during the gold rush, there was that genocide that was going on where, um, they were being paid to, uh, scalp, um, our people and basically just eradicate us. So we, we have been strong to preserve our culture and our people um, through all of that. Yeah, I've been really um, fascinated because, you know, I come from a Plains tribe. And when we talk about like Native history, we rarely hear about California tribal histories. Um, you know, we hear a lot about the Plains Natives, the Southwest, you know, we talk a little even just a little about the east coast but i really find that it's more of like the east and western coast native tribes that really get erased within our tribal history like when we're speaking about it and i think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the cultures are so vastly different from that of the plains and the southwestern tribes right um and it's really fascinating to me too just how hard it is to to get other natives to include those histories with native history. Um, it is, it's, um, you know, when I, when I meet people and they hear that I'm native, I automatically get put in the category of being a plains, a plains Indian. And I'll get asked if I live in a teepee, there's a lot of different things. And so I always tell people that, well, you know, the stereotype of natives is not where we don't all live in the same areas and have this, we have a collective culture now due to um, the powwow scene, you know, and all that stuff that's going on. But each culture, each tribe has its own unique culture. So even though I'm Miwok, I'm not the same as the Sierra Miwok or the, you know, the Yosemite Miwok. We have our own distinct uh, language and our own distinct uh, cultures. Yeah, 100%. And I think that's, you know, it's also a struggle that we have just when we're talking about Native history anyway, is to get people to understand that we're not a monolith. Like, our cultures are very diverse. And as people, like, we're very diverse. Our our processes, our cultures, our traditions, like, everything about us is diverse. <laughs> but yes. we always get caught in pot we always get put in those boxes and I always find it infuriating you know as a Plains native that you know even now I'm constantly asked like if I live in a teepee or and I'm just yeah. like what the heck <laughs> you know, like what <laughs> what year do you think we're in <laughs> right 
Well, I mean, but it's the same as in with other, you need to talk about the, you know, the Latinx culture and it's like each, each individual area, they have their own distinct from Central South America, even Spain to, you know, to Mexico. There's distinction. Yes, they have a collective things that bring them close, you know, like language and some, some similarities in the traditions and cultures. But then again, they're also distinct as well. So it's just that. It's just that categorizing thing of things that are alike need to be put together. And that's not always the right thing to do. No, absolutely. And it kind of, you know, it just kind of makes me sad too, right? Because when we look at how colonization has affected natives here in the U.S., you know, one of the main things that they push is assimilation. And you look at all of the people that are here and, when you really look at the individual history of how they came to this country, it's always you have to give up your identity. You have to give up your language. You have to give up your traditions in order to be this homogenized idea of what an American is. And when you look at history and just how whitewashed it is, it it always makes me a little bit sad because not only are people sacrificing their lives to get to this country for, you know, what was the American dream, you know, it's, they're sacrificing a huge part of their identities and who they are to do so. And we see this, um, this phenomenon now, like Mm -hmm. where people are just want something to believe in or want something to identify with that they're just grasping onto anything. And unfortunately, <laughs> in this country, it tends to be politics. Right. And it's, and it's always hard, like as a native too, right? Because I think we look as, we still look at ourselves as being human beings first. And right. being part of our communities first. That we don't really identify, you know, as like Republican or Democrat, like it's not part of like our essential inherent identities. It's just, you know, it's like something we do when we vote, you know, this is the way we vote. It doesn't go deeper than that, but it always makes me sad because you look, when you really look at a person's history, like there's so much richness there. Like there's so much beauty and heartbreak and just there's a story that is so powerful when you look at people's individual histories and you go back to their ancestors and their ancestors the same way that it is with ours. But, you know, people tend to forget that they have that history in their family. <laughs> right. You and you and I and I've gotten this from a lot of people that I know and even you know, I wasn't raised native. I was raised Italian. And I've been, I was always been told, well, we don't have culture. And I said, yes, we do. I mean, everybody has culture, even if you don't know the culture of the family of where you came from, your culture, the thing that you live with, the stuff that you do every day, that's culture, you know, the traditions that you have, that's your culture. So when people say I don't have culture, we're like, yes, you do. But they're so taught to look as culture as something out of themselves when it's something that's just initially part of you. Exactly. Exactly. It's, you know, and it's always so heartbreaking to me because, you know, like I've, I've kind of learned a lot of patience in these later years of my life, <laughs> you know, because, you know, I think when we're younger, you know, it's just part of what we do as young people. Like we're still trying to figure out like, you know, who we want to be, what do we want to do with our lives, you know, and that, that kind of thing. Right. But I feel like 
for a lot of people, they're going through that same process. But with natives, like we know who we are in in the essence of like we know where we come from. Right. And we know that we have a community behind us. We know that, you know, we have families, we have traditions, we have cultures. And so when we're searching for ourselves, you know, and I put that in little air quotes, <laughs> it's just trying to figure out like where we fit in this world. Right. But for a lot of people who aren't Native, it's literally trying to figure out who they are. Like they're not really looking for you know, what they're going to be or who they want to be. It's literally looking for something to hold on to, like that ground right. some sort of identity. Right. And I, I agree with that because when people, I know people that are adopted and they don't have, a, they don't have anything to grasp. And, and it's like, I tell people, it's like, you know, my, my people are from Marin and Sonoma County. I can tell you, you know, where, uh, old man coyote created the world like where we are from what we have done like my blood sweat and tears of my ancestors are on this land right here when i walk there it recognizes me that's what keeps me grounded and i feel so so sad for people that don't have that and you know because that those are my roots and some people don't know where to set their roots and they get lost no, 100%. And it's hard and it's hard to keep connected to those roots even if you do know them because yeah. we live in this society that wants us to keep clipping at them and yeah. be like, "No, that's not good. No, no, no. That's no. This is what you need to do." <laughs> and it's it's such a shallow existence because and it just kind of leaves you open to fall for anything. You know, it's like that saying, what is it? Like if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Correct. And I, and, I, and I feel like that's our society right now. Right. I, I do feel that way too. It, you know, I mean, it just, it's so, it's so jumbled. And it, I mean, you, you can't even, you can't even have conversations with politics now because it's just like everything that you thought you believed before is so different now. Like, I don't even know what's going on anymore, you know? So like, and it's funny because, you know, I, sometimes I like to stir the pot a little bit and I was talking on a podcast and I was cracking up. I was like, you know, I'm really going to blow people's noodles here. But I was thinking if this was any other time in our history, I said, I'd probably be a Republican, you know, (laughs) because I, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma you know, it's a red state, you know, almost all the natives that I know vote Republican, but it's not part of like our identity. You know, it's just something that, you know, my grandparents did, their grandparents did. That's the way they voted. And, you know, it they didn't really think put much thought into it, you know, but right. it's different now because, you know, like in my family, you know, there were a lot of Republicans, but there were also Democrats and it was never a big deal. Like there were no arguments at the dinner table, you know, even during election years, because basically, you know, we also kind of grew up thinking like they're the same party, you know, like it's kind of like the lesser of two evils. <laughs> yes, I, I grew up that way, too. But I, that's why that's why I have a my party has declined to state be just because I feel like I don't want to vote strictly party. Like I want to be able to see what's going on and then vote for what I, what I believe to be right. Or if I don't believe in anything to be right, then I won't vote at all. But it's, you know, I feel like I have all the information that way as when just saying my grandmother would be like, well, I'm Republican. So I'm voting Republican. You know, my dad, I'm Democrat. So I'm a vote Democrat. But do you know what you're voting for? That's exactly. 
Yeah, and when we're talking about voting rights, like that should be the norm. Like you shouldn't be held, you know, like if you're a Democrat, you shouldn't be held to just voting for being able to vote for Democrats or right. vote for Republicans. Like you should be able to have the choice overall. Right. Which, you know, is I think it's just weird for us natives anyway to think about voting in, you know, this colonial <laughs> system and participating when we know the harm that they have done to you know native communities and just knowing that regardless of what party is in office they never have the best interests of indian country at heart no and that's why i'm so glad that we who we have a secretary of interior right now because for the first time we have a native woman in office and it's just somebody who is able to uh use her voice to help native people but uh, voting is so important because of that i mean if we don't vote we don't have a voice so it's like you might not agree with the politics but the politics affect you every day that government affects us exactly we we need to be a part of it i mean with our government government relations as sovereign nations these are the people that that we deal with on a daily basis with everything that we do because now we are not just cultural people we are sovereign nations political nations um our autonomy is um like our relationship with the federal government is political we are not that's why disenrollment is so disheartening because we are not a race we are a political entity so you're telling somebody they cannot be a citizen of your nation not even american citizens People that have done treason are not, they never, their system's never taken away. So why do we get the right to do that? And the, and the people that disenroll their nation, their, their um, citizens, they have nobody that holds these tyrannical leaders accountable. And these leaders should be held accountable in some way or another, either by us, by creating our own type of Supreme Court system or uh, United Nations of Natives. Or through the federal government, we need someone needs to have that power. It's it's not fair to our people. No, one hundred percent. And you know, let's get back to talking about your work. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk about this all day long. I know. <laughs> and you know, and to me, I I love being able to talk about that with natives. You know, to get all these different perspectives on you know, like the way that we exist, you know, the way that we vote, the way that we think of our sovereignty, you know, I love getting all those perspectives because they're so different. Like we're not a hive mind and, you know, regardless of whether or not like we all agree on, you know, what is being said or not, like there's a lot of importance in that in determining, you know, like the path that we're going to be able to take and the opportunities that are there for us as native people. Right. But so, so I, you know, I love those discussions and cause we can, we could talk all day <laughs> about that. Cause it's like layer after layer after layer. Right. But, <laughs> but you know, like I'm really excited because I know that you won um, an award or, and I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but I believe it's Ope. Yes, it's Ope. That's right. Okay, yeah. So I I was actually speaking at um the returning the gift for the year that your oh that Ope won. <laughs> oh, well awesome. Like I, I remember that so very clearly and 
you know, like I like I was super excited because now you're being published through that painted horse press and you know this book is getting out there into the world. So let's talk about that a little bit. And because what I want to know is because this is really interesting to me, you know, is just talking to native creatives and learning about the process, like what inspires and what drives that creative process. So in writing Obey, like what inspired you? Well, Obey is a collection of poems. So Obey means more um, in Miwok. And it's a collection of poems that opens up the California Indian world. Like we had talked about earlier how that's something that uh, people don't know much about. So the book opens up the California Indian world and the coast Miwok culture to the outside. Um, there's a rich history within California and within the indigenous, indigenous people here. And I wanted people to see who we are through a different lens because we are only known through the perspective of missions, the gold rush, and then tribal casinos. Um, but that's not us. Like, not many people know there was a genocide here in California during the gold rush. And so Obey was written in spite of all of this. It was inspired by the rich culture of the Coast Miwok and the Southern Pomo people. And these poems take the history of what happened to us and show how we are more than those instances. The pieces tell a story that weave our spirituality and mythology together and the power that we still hold by carrying these traditions, culture, and language within our blood. The inspiration behind this book we um, was just showcasing the world our strength and resilience by surviving the genocide that we have faced for over 500 years and just saying that we are more than our past, that we are strong people that are moving forward and um, this is who we are. That was what inspired me to write this. I just wanted to show the world who and what I came from. Yeah, and I think that's a powerful message too, you know, that we're more than our past um, because you know, with colonization, it kind of disrupted the way that we are in this world, the way that we've been able to evolve as people. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes, like, I find that it feels like we're in a constant battle, you know, yeah. because that we have these things, like we walk in two worlds or we exist in two worlds when really there's just one world. It's just different experiences that we have to have. Right, but- right. <laughs> And so it oftentimes, like, it feels like we're in this struggle, you know, as Indigenous people, like, having to choose, like, we're being forced to choose between being traditional or being connected to our past and being connected to the now and to our future, when really it's, you know, like, we've never viewed time as a linear path. Like, you know, the past, the present, and the future, they all exist at the same time within the same realm. And I feel like, you know, we're coming to this place, like within the Native community, where um, it's not so much about who we were or what we could have been or what could we could have had. It's now about what we will do, who mm-hmm. we will be and who we are going to be, like who we hope to be. <laughs> like, you know, like we're, we're talking more about the future. Right. Which is nice because I think that's something that we're still coming to terms with as Native Mm -hmm. people. 
like we know who we are, we know who we come from, but with colonization, we're in a rebirth. Like we we are still in this process of trying to figure out, you know, how do we rebuild what was torn down? How do we reclaim what was lost? And who is it that we want to be now and going into the future? Like what do we want to to leave for that is going to carry us forward? And it's right. such a beautiful thing to see through art, through literature. Because, you know, there is this kind of like renaissance that's going on right now. Right. And it's so, it, to me, it's just so powerful because, you know, I, your book coming out. We have a lot of Native writers who are publishing books this year. And it's a beautiful thing to see because it's like a constant reminder that, you know, everything that has happened has not defined our path forward. Like we're... Right like it hasn't stunted us in a way like we're we're moving past it in a way that is not only honoring and remembering what was done but also i don't know like reimagining what can be from it like it doesn't just have to be negative like it doesn't just have to mean um destruction or trauma you know, there's this possibility of healing and growth that can yes. happen. And right. I think and that, that's, and that's what that's Ope so is about. Right. And that's what Ope is about. It's just saying we're not what we were. Like, we are not our trauma. We're not that generational trauma that that we are born with, that we can be more than that. And we need to heal ourselves from that so that we can move forward positively and rebuild our rebuild our nations and and be there for our people in a more positive manner. Yeah, and you know, it's to me, it's the most beautiful thing that I see happening right now because you know, of course, we know there's so much trauma and so much heartbreak, and you know, so many of our people are in mourning right now. That mm-hmm. it's good to have hope, and it's yes. good to have you know these these little moments, whether it's through literature or whether through it's through music, that we can find this space to to heal and to also project that hope. Um, yes. Because I find it's really easy to get overwhelmed um, because, you know, we're just so inundated with all the issues that we face because, you know, we don't have the privilege of not dealing with it, you know, like the right, murdered and missing, right. you know, the issues that we see, whether it's tribal disenrollment or, you know, our health centers being able to get the resources that they need in this pandemic, you know, it's, it's so easy to get overwhelmed by all that. So I find right. like that we have these moments of hope through literature and music, like it's the most beautiful thing to me, which brings me to my next question, which <laughs> What was an early experience where you learned that language had the power to create change on an emotional, physical, and even spiritual level? Um, so, you know, um, I was five. Uh, my dad's best friend introduced me to the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King, which referencing him on his day and Thurgood Marshall when I was five years old. And I learned that in an early time in my life, the power that words and language had to be able to feel a physical change. Um, And since I learned at that age, I learned how important it was to speak up and use words 
to um, to feel change emotionally, physically, and spiritually. As I started writing um, when I was uh, about 12 and 13 using that. And then when I went to college, I took a post-colonial literature class and I read Joy Harjo for the first time. And I learned that language and writing could be used to honor culture, language, and our people um, while also feeling change. This is when my writing itself changed. And I started utilizing all that I learned to create pieces that eventually would be compiled into this book. I, so this book has been a work in progress for a long time before I even knew it existed. Um, and that's when I learned also about the importance of intermixing uh, Miwok um, and the power that held by speaking that language um, to be able to feel change, to know where to, to know where I came from. I feel different when I speak the language. Definitely. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny because I think when we're young, we kind of take for granted, you know, the power of language. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of it is because, you know, when you're young, depending on how you grew up, like if your, you know, native language was being spoken in the home, or you were able to be able to read a lot or whatever, like your relationship with language and words um, is not something that you really think about. But there does come a point when you start realizing like your language has power. Like I try to speak my language a little bit every day, even if it's just one word. <laughs> right. And I don't know that much. Like I'm still learning. And it's really hard for me because I learned English first. Right. And me too. It's and it's kind of hard because our languages and the I guess you would say the relationship between our words and what those words mean is so vastly different from in, in English, like it's it's not the same. Like even the way that letters correlate to alphabet letters, you know, it's different. The way they sound is different um, because I, you know, I'm Oto Missouri and Choctaw, and it's easier for me to to learn Choctaw than it is to learn Oto Missouri because mm -hmm. with the Oto language, like the X, you know, we we're used to it having the X sound in English, but that's not the sound it makes in our tribal language. It makes something totally unrelated. And then right. there's also like a lot of guttural sounds. Right. And so like, it's really hard because with English, like we're told, we're taught how to pronunciate and how everything has a very distinct sound. And, you know, like it's hard to unlearn that. So you like, you don't really think about it, but there's so much power when you start unlearning English and start learning your traditional languages and you start learning about right. the relationship between the language and the words that you're saying in those words and to what to whatever it is they represent like you know like even just when you look at how our tribal languages translate like the word tree and different types of tree like there's a beauty because so many times you know like like if you're discussing a willow tree then right. The word that you're saying describes the willow tree, but it's not just like saying just willow tree. It's like, you know, the tree that sways or tree that dance or the dancing tree. And like there's like there's something beautiful about that because our languages are basically poetry. <laughs> right, right. right. 
they're, they're ready, like, like, you know. Yeah, like, and it makes sense that, you know, we have so many Native poets because that's our language. Like, it's essentially our language <laughs> is poetry. Like, seeing the beauty and the things that most people don't often recognize about the most mundane things in nature. Right, right, right. I agree with that. I, there's a musicality behind the language. And and I think that also kind of makes it hard too, right? Because I think with English, you're taught just to see words as one thing. Like, this is what it is. You know, tree is tree. Like, there's nothing really deep about that. Or, you know, then you get into specific, like oak tree. Okay, well, you know, it's an oak tree. <laughs> And, but then you start seeing how those words differ in our native languages. And the, it's kind of hard to get out of that um, very literal state of mind. Right, right. I agree with that. Which, again, let me ask you this, because in what ways has tapping into the power of creation through writing and, you know, you being able to use words to create change or to convey emotions and feelings and even our histories, you know, what has energized and exhausted you about that process? Well, words have always been an outlet for me through speaking, reading and writing. Um, I'm very connected to uh, to words. Um, I feel them very deeply, like in, in, empathically. And so I've always felt that I've been called to be a storyteller, um, which I would feel like um, and for Native people, the storytellers were what is who or what taught our lessons during ceremony to the people. Um, I, so I feel like tapping into writing and the power of writing and telling stories has energized me because it helped me find my voice. Like, for instance, in my poem, Matalis, it means we stand. In the eighth stanza, it says, uh, or Oye, Old Man Coyote, our creator, says we are Ope. Um, o um, Oye rips out our submissive silences and sheds a tear. He wants us to be able to speak. He doesn't want us to hold this stuff in anymore. So this is important because our trauma and our pride has taught us to hold on to our generational pain. And this is wrong. And I learned this through um through the power of writing um and it has allowed me to find my voice to speak out against the trauma and to release it because i don't want to carry it inside of me anymore i don't want to carry it um through my, for my future generations i want them to heal um so in that picture you had put up of me um for the promotion of this i took during a photo shoot and I put the MMIW handprint on my cheek instead of putting it on my mouth because I wanted to show that even though the victims were silenced, um, I was speaking on their behalf. And so I wanted justice to happen for them. So if I had put the hand on my mouth, I wouldn't have been able to speak because I OEA told me to stop being submissive. And I learned all that through just by releasing the pain through my writing. And I think that's something that um, that we kind of take for granted too, because we we forget that symbolism has power, mm -hmm. 
And, you know, like the murdered and missing indigenous women, there's so much symbolism, you know, whether it's using the color red or the handprint over the mouth, it's also remembering that we're also not silent. Um, we have the ability to speak. We have the power to create change and to raise awareness. And the only time that we are silenced is if we allow ourselves to be. Correct. And so I really love that you said that you put the handprint like on your cheek, um, you know, just to kind of say that I will not be silenced. Like I am not silenced. I have a voice and I'm going to use it. You know, I think that's something that is really powerful because it conveys that message and also breaks that cycle of, I guess you would say like a cycle of fear, you know, because yes. like, I think as native people, like we're constantly asking, am I next? Because we know that the threat exists and that, you know, just being an indigenous woman in this world at this specific time, that the threat is ever present. It is, it is, it is ever present, but I, and I feel that the only way that we will have the power to overcome this fear is to just say that I won't be moved anymore. You can't, you can't, you can't make me and I'm not going to be silent. You're, you know, you're not. And that's what, you know, we stand is about. It's saying, uh, you know, to be proud, to wear your hair, to take a stand, to, you know, braid it, to speak the language, to do all those things that we are afraid to do because we have been told for so long to, um, to assimilate, to acculturate, to this, to the, to this nation. And it's, you know, we can still be who we are and still be, we have dual citizenship. We are American citizens as well as tribal citizens or an Indian people and American people. So therefore we can live in both worlds and we don't have to give up who we are just because that's what we're told to do. You know, I don't have to listen to what somebody else says. I have the power to say no. 100%. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like Star Wars. <laughs> it's like, you know, strike me down and I shall become more powerful than you ever imagined. Right. And I, and I really feel that's true with us as Native people because, you know, even though we do have this, this epidemic and this terrible reality of murdered and missing Indigenous women, Every single one has become more powerful and none of them have been truly silenced because, you know, their spirits are still with us. And yes. that love that, you know, they had for the people in their lives and the love that the people, you know, had for them, you know, it's still just as strong and stronger because instead of backing down, we have people standing up. And, you know, working hard to make sure that, you know, that there's justice and that, you know, that this doesn't happen to anyone else. And so right. I find that, you know, it's really important to kind of keep that perspective, too, because otherwise, you know, it, it's really easy to kind of give into that grief and that pain and to kind of fall into um, almost like a perpetual victimhood. Yeah. Yeah. And just believing that we don't have power and that we are just victims. 
And it kind of takes away from the fact that, you know, our ancestors have, you know, survived so much um, and endured so much, you know, so that we could be here today. It kind of, it kind of um, takes away from that. Because right. it kind of makes us believe that we are not capable of doing the same thing, that we have to that we have to kind of play this game, you know, that we have to make ourselves small, that we have to make ourselves invisible in order just to keep surviving when that's not the case at all. Like we need to be powerful. We need to be loud. We need to, you know, make as much noise as possible and draw as much attention to, you know, these issues as possible because otherwise they'll continue to happen and continue to be swept under the rug and treated as, you know, as if they're not important, as if those lives are not important and are just, you know, expendable, that they didn't have any worth when that's absolutely not true at all. You know, these are our, you know, our sisters, our mothers, our aunties, our grandmas. And, you know, the, it's not that we're just losing loved ones. It's that, with every loss, you know, we lose a piece of our history, our culture, and we lose a little piece of our future. Because right. that's what they were building and contributing to. Right, right. Did I look? Oh, I lost you. Are you back? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Okay. <laughs> um, what was the last thing you said? Can you repeat that? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's actually, I can't remember what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> I just had a brain fart. <laughs> and well, I wanted to respond to what you were saying. I was trying to find it in the book, but one of my poems that I had wrote, I think it's Oye's confession where he's talking to the priest and the priest was telling him that he didn't have power here anymore. And and you go on later on and, and, and Oye realizes that he has power. And that's when he tells us to take the stand and he take a stand and he tells us to rip out our submissive silences and I feel that you know it's it's just because we have been told and pushed down for so long and for so long that's just all we know but there's a point when people are just like I don't want to take I don't want to take that anymore and I think that I think that we're there like I really think that when people talk about the seventh generation prophecy like I really think that that's where we're at right now that we're just we're tired of being uh, trampled on and, and pushed to the side and, and told that we're only what the federal government says that we are and we're only here to um, what they want us to be and I and we're just we're tired of that we're, I mean we certainly started taking the stand at Standing Rock and people listened you know when we were right and I think people saw that and they're realizing that maybe some of the things that we've been saying all along are true because we have we have a responsibility that's different than other people. We have a responsibility to protect nature, to protect the world that we live in, that um, for the future generations, to give them something that you know we don't want to destroy the world, and then they come, they come, and there's nothing here for them. So we, the, these are our brothers and sisters: the four-legged, the two-legged, the no-legged, the you know, the water, the earth, the air. You know the mother. Th this is this is our home, um, and so I think that right now we we are realizing that it's time to take the stand. That it's time to say enough is enough, and that we're going to fight back. Um, and people are finally listening. I think that we're finally finding our voice. 
Absolutely. Um, that sounds about along the lines of what I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> because I swear, you know, it's it's such a beautiful thing right now that people are feeling empowered to speak up. And it's also a relief for, you know, like, okay, I'm not that old, but, you know, I'm in my 40s now. And, you know, there's 40 is like going to sleep and then you just wake up tired one day and you just stay tired. You know, it's, <laughs> like, I'm 39, like, I'm there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, because I'm so ready, you know, just to to find some kind of rest. Right. And what I really love now is that because so many other people are willing to step up and aren't afraid to speak out and, you know, to, to take the risks that come with um, raising awareness, that come with being on the front lines to, you know, protect this earth and to protect what we love, you know, it does give us older generations room to step back. Right. And, and to deal with the consequences that come with being that person who is speaking up, you know, it does take a toll and it, it changes you in a lot of ways that we don't oftentimes have time to reconcile with because we're right. just constantly having to speak out and constantly having to raise awareness. So I find that now that we have we like our younger generations that are starting to pick up these torches and to carry on the work that, and, you know, further the groundwork that we already laid, you know, it, it gives us time to kind of rest and reconcile with, you know, how that has affected us. Right. And help us to kind of recenter and yes. come back to, you know, realizing, you know, that's not all we are. Like, you know, I'm not just an advocate. I'm not just, you know, a frontliner. I'm not just here to, you know, sacrifice my well-being to protect what I love. You know, there's so much more to me than that. And I think sometimes you forget that because we're just so caught up in the fight of the moment. Right. And so now that, you know, like I'm older and I have time to step back, you know, it's it's a relief because, you know, now we have other voices to elevate and, you know, we can still do the work that we do, but also find balance and in, in learning to, you know, find time to take rest. Like we don't always have to be there. If we need to rest in order to protect our well-being, um, to protect our spirit even, you know, it's okay for us to step back because that work doesn't stop. There is always someone right behind us who is picking up that torch and running forward with it. Right. And, you know, to me, I think that's the most beautiful thing, you know, about getting older. <laughs> right. Well, we have to heal too, because if we're constantly being the one you know, like we pour out, we pour out, we pour out. But if there's nothing that we are putting back into ourselves, then we just get tired. And it's just like, then you, then you start becoming bitter because then you're, you're going out to the front lines and nothing is changing or it's not changing fast enough. And, and so we have to step back so we can heal our spirit from all that, that trauma and pain that we see every day so that we can go back out there and actually be um, healthy enough to fight because if we're not healthy enough to fight these fights there's no point in being there in the first place because you're just holding everybody down exactly and especially because you know we're also seeing that we're losing a lot of people to stress-related illnesses um, you right. know we're seeing the community caregivers who 
you know, are dying because of heart issues and, you know, or diabetes and just a lot of these things that we don't really think about because, you know, we're so caught up in dealing with these other issues that we forget to take care of ourselves. And right. you know, I've, and it's always like, it's always shocking too, because you know, they're, you know, the work that they do, you know, how much energy they are expending and, you know, that they, that they're not resting, that they're constantly out there, you know, doing what they feel they need to do. And it's always shocking because you're like, but they seem so healthy. They seem so strong. They seemed, you know, they were just fine. But the reality is that sometimes we're not fine. And we just don't know that because we haven't had the space to step back. Right. And I agree with that because, you know, somebody taught me recently that, and I heard this my whole life, but it never hit. You know, someone taught me recently that um, you can't help anybody until you help yourself. And, you know, I really did take a step back. I'm taking a step back from the front lines. I've been doing, you know, sacred site preservation work for 20 years. And I took a break because, you know, I wasn't healthy. And, you know, I've I've been on a journey. I lost 70 pounds since this summer and I'm still going and I'm not going to stop until I'm healthy. And when I get healthy, maybe I'll go back out there to the front lines, but I can't help anybody until I'm spiritually and physically healed, you know? Yeah, I mean, and that's something that, you know, we all, like, we don't really talk that much about it, you know, because it almost makes it seem like we're not, we're not strong if we have to right. step back. And that's not the case. You know, it takes more strength to step back than right. <laughs> it does to keep going. <laughs> Right. It's such a hard thing to do because, you know, I've stepped back quite a bit in these last maybe three or four years. Um, You know, I've been kind of sidelined by health issues. And so it's also given me perspective on just, you know, how much I was doing and how much, you know, it was. Like there was always like this feeling like it was life and death. Like everything was life and death. Everything was so dire and the need was so immediate that I felt like if I stopped or if I didn't show up, you know, regardless of how, how I was feeling or, you know, or regardless of whether or not, you know, I felt like it was my battle to fight, you know, I was letting people down and in reality is like I was letting myself down because I was literally right. killing myself. <laughs> right. And you can't, right. and like you said, like you can't help other people if you're not well, like what good am I going to be if I'm dead? <laughs> that, <laughs> like, right. like as much as I'd like to say, well, you know, I'm going to come back as a ghost and kick people's butts. You know, that's, <laughs> I don't know that because I might like the rest I find over there. <laughs> you know? Right. Then that's why, you know, I I take it, I take a, um, I look at my elders and I look at them and I see how they've stepped back and they've let someone else take the reins and they tell me, they tell me all the time, get, take the, get the rest. The, the fight will be here tomorrow, you know? And so I find other ways to help if I can't be on the front lines, you know? And, you know, the writing is one of those ways. It's just, um, we just have to find ways where we can do stuff and not, expend all our energy to the point where we get ourselves sick yeah because that's part of all these systems of oppression that's the goal is to exhaust us to distract us 
to, you know, to to actually kill us. You know, that's the goal of these oppressive systems that we're up against. And so right. I think it's like important that we find time and we find outlets, which, you know, creative processes is such a tremendous way for especially native people to to find that rest and to find that break and that, that base for healing because you can just pour everything into it. And, you know, like I, you know, there's so many people's poetry that I read and you read it and you feel it and you understand like that pain that they feel because, you know, it's something that is so universal to a lot of native people. You know, it's, talking about our history is talking about, you know, where it is we come from, some of the struggles that we face in these present days and feel it to like your core. Like right. I cannot listen to um, Frank Wan's song seven. <laughs> yes. Without me, crying. Me neither. Me neither. <laughs> like, and it's so, and it's so funny because like, it's such an empowering song, but at the same time, like it just hits you to that core where it's just devastating at the same time. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I that's the song I play to pump myself up, you know, to like when I'm going to when like before a speaking engagement or before anything, right. you know, just to remind me why it is I'm doing the work that I do. You know, that's my that's my jam. But at the same time, it's also leaves you just so devastated like i'm sitting there like please don't cry don't ruin my makeup <laughs> right and you listen to it and you're like that didn't even that didn't even pump me up so i have to i literally to pump me up i have to listen to stuff that does not have an impact on me you know spiritually because you i listen to spiritual music you know um i went to a memorial this weekend and and um uh, my fiance had told me that I needed to listen to some, some spiritual stuff to help me get motivated, you know, to be in that space when I went and I'm listening to the stuff in the car and I just start crying. I'm okay. I can't listen to this anymore. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my God, it's supposed to help me. But I'm like, all I'm doing is just blubbering before I even walk into the place. So, you know, yeah, like it just hits you in these very real places because you understand like where it's coming from. And, you know, I think that's that's going to lead me to my next question here is what's the most challenging pro like process of writing for you? You know, like when you're tapping into all these emotions, when you're tapping into all this, you know, all these experiences that you have, like what are some of the challenges that you face in having to rein those in well sometimes to be honest with you i'm not even present when i write and i don't and it, it, it's weird i feel like there's something else that speaks through me sometimes and so the words just fall out and i have to get them out fast enough like I, there's i can't get them out fast enough i mean it's just like they'll just pop in my head and i just have to pick up a napkin do something and write them down and i'll have like little napkins placed somewhere and one day I realized that all of them make a piece and um uh when I am present when I write though and I have to put myself in that space um I I do pray a lot I mean I burn sage um and I do pray a lot because I I try not to let the um the I let myself feel and sometimes I'll let myself cry and I let myself feel what I'm writing to let it out, but I don't like let it overtake me. 
Um, I let myself heal from it. But sometimes the challenging part is that it does engulf you and it exhausts you. There'll, there'll be times that I'll go for months without writing a word because the last thing that I did just so exhausted me that my spirit needs time to heal before it can even move on to something else. So it's it's having to deal with those. I, I can't, and that, you know, I'm a ghost writer too. So sometimes that impacts, if I'm emotionally writing something, it can impact my creativity to the point where um, if you stress me out too much, I might not be able to finish. Uh, so I, it's, I can't take my emotions out of my work. <laughs> I, I find that's kind of the challenge because what's funny too is sometimes I will be writing an article there's one I've been working on for months and I it's a really it's deals with uh, suicide in reservation dogs and right. it's really hard to write you know from like as a suicide survivor and as you know a mental health advocate it's hard, really hard to write when that was such a visceral response that was generated from that season and you know just how much he could relate from it but it's kind of funny because I found that I would write a paragraph and you know I'd be kind of like crying or like having a hard time with it and you know thinking like oh I'm writing something super emotional or whatever and you know and I'll step away from it you know to take that kind of break but then I go back and I'm like, what was I crying about? <laughs> because it wasn't even <laughs> right? like emotional, but just the fact that, you know, I was thinking about it and feeling it at the time, you know, and it's like, oh, that wasn't, you know, like, wait a second. How was I having that kind of emotional response <laughs> when this isn't something that's really that emotional? <laughs> because we, I think sometimes we take a lot of things personal. And so it's like, we, you know, I noticed that when I was younger, when I when I would, I would fight about stuff. Now I pick my battles, but when I used to fight about stuff. Um, I would just everything would just make me so irate, and I'm like, no, that's not politically correct. No, that's wrong. And now I'm to the point where I'm like, is it even worth it? Nope, it's not even worth my time. You know, because some people are just gonna. You, I just look at it and go, I can, I'm not gonna convince you otherwise. So why even waste my breath? So. I get that where you're just like, is it even worth the emotion? Like, was it even an emotional response I should have for that? Right. And it's so funny because like, you just don't think about it at the time, but like, these are like, it, and it just interests me so much because I know so many native creatives who, you know, do the same thing. Like you feel and you're so connected to what it is you're writing that it really doesn't matter what you're writing it's going to elicit some kind of response from you. And depending on what your experience is or, you know, what memory it's jogging up, mm -hmm. it's going to be super strong. But then when you go back to it, it's going to be like, uh, wait a second. I literally wrote this episode was really good. <laughs> you know? And yes. like, I'm crying over that line. <laughs> but it's, but it's so funny to me because, you know, it's just that creative process for Native is so, it's so humbling. It, it is. It, it is very humbling. It's, um, it's a uh, very, um, 
I think, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't even have the words right now. I totally agree with you. It's it's very humbling. It's it's emotional, but humbling. I think we just realize um, through, uh, through that pain just um, how human we are. Yeah, it was kind of like, I don't want to be human. <laughs> it's well, like, you know, it's and, and my, for me. Right, because through my writing, I speak through my spirit. So I don't even feel like, like I said, I'm not even present when I do that. So, it, it you know, so when you come back and you start feeling that emotions, you in the raw emotion, you really feel how human that you are and how much that that impacts you. Um, and But that, I think that's also the generational the generational trauma that we have that, you know, that, that I am still learning to how to heal from. Yeah. And it's also learning that, you know, we do have things to heal from, um, you know, and it also kind of puts you back in tune with the reality of where you're at emotionally in the real world. Cause it's so easy for us to kind of fake it till you make it. Like if we're not doing well, you know, we will still feel obligated to say I'm fine. I'm yeah. okay. Nothing's wrong. And, and to go on and act as if there's nothing wrong when really, you know, you're basically barely holding it together. And, yes. you know, like it's easy to just kind of think, no, I'm fine. I'm good. And just kind of push it aside. But then when you're writing, like I think, or creating something, like it kind of forces you to confront, confront that, to confront yes. the fact that you're not fine. And it makes you feel it whether or not you want to. <laughs> That's the healing process because mm -hmm. in all reality, if you know, like I, this is writing is my drug because it may, because people do stuff to suppress, but I do, I write not to suppress, but to release. That's what you can see in my work is that I'm letting okay. out. Then, okay. You cut out for a couple of seconds there. Could you repeat the last things you said? Oh, when I, for my writing, I said, it, it, that's how I heal is just by, um, by just letting it out by writing it. That's why you can see that in my work, you can see the pain in there because that's the only way to get it out. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something that we have to do. Um, and I'm glad that we're in this space too, right? Where we can actually talk about what it is we're feeling or what it is experiencing right. or, and to talk about what it is that is hurting us because for so long, like we know our ancestors had to kind of just bottle it up and, you know, had this don't talk about it kind of attitude. Like if you pretend it didn't happen, then it can't hurt us. Um, but now we're finding, you know, that, bottling it up actually did more harm yeah and you know that now you know we find that in in order to heal like we do have to confront it we do have to talk about it like we have to acknowledge you know the root of the problem in order to heal it and i find that's kind of comforting um because it it also connects us like you know because when you're going through trauma or you're going through grief it's so easy to feel like you're all alone, like you're in yes. that fight by yourself. But I think with talking about it, we start realizing that, you know, we're not the only ones going through this or feeling this way and that there are other people who are going through the process or have gone through that process who, you know, are also more than willing to help us figure out the best way to navigate it ourselves. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, it's, 
it's this the idea that um we were afraid to share stuff before because it made us vulnerable and we thought that that was a weakness but i feel like that's our strength is being able to collectively said yes i feel pain but okay now i feel pain now what do i do with it because holding it in all it does like i said is make us bitter and it makes us um it harms our spirit it makes us sick so letting it out helps us to be able to um to heal and to grow and then it helps us be able to share those experiences that's why uh programs like na and aa and all those community programs where you you go together with people talking circles why they're so important is because you literally are speaking with people that are going through the same thing that you're going through and there's power in that and that collectivity their collectiveness or however you say that there's this there's power there and so um being able to share that with somebody and knowing that you're not alone makes it a little bit easier to learn how to uh go through that get through that yeah i think it's also you know having that um accountability to each other you know through those programs Yes. You know, like being able to talk about that harm. Okay, well, that makes you now accountable, you know, to everybody else who is going through the same thing. Like we have a responsibility to take care of each other and right. to make sure that we're supported and to know that we're not alone in this. Like, I think that's such, you know, I think that's why it's such a great thing to be Native um, <laughs> because we are accountable to each other as relatives and, you know, like, if you i think if you're dealing with like suicide ideation or you're dealing with a lot of depression you know i think having that sense of community really helps because you know it kind of reminds you that you know that you're needed that you're loved that you that you have a community behind you and you know that you do have a responsibility not just to yourself or your family but to your people and the future of your people, you know, to, to heal that hurt and to, yes. and to keep surviving because, you know, the knowledge that we carry, um, no matter how small or big we think that knowledge is or how important we think it is, you know, it matters and it plays a part in our history and yes. in, in our future. And I, and I, you know, and that's, to bring it back to the book, but that's what Ope is about. Like Ope starts, you know, the, the, the first book is the first poem is, you know, is, is about what happened with, it's called basket him, but it's basically about what happened between, you know, the missions and, and how we were lied to, you know, um, as someone who was raised Catholic, you know, I have, I have a hard time sometimes but of course, I've decided, learned to separate people from spirituality. But, you know, the book starts out with that. It starts out with um, what all the pain that happened to us. And then we get to the end and it shows how we are healing. And it shows how, as a collective, we are more. And because we as human beings, not even natives, are more than our pain we are more than our experiences because our experiences and the pain help us see how strong and resilient we are. We can't grow without those things. We, all, we would never be better people if we didn't go through adversity. And I think that's what the book shows. It shows that how 
how adverse we are as a people by going through these things and now and how we came up stronger on the other side because we weren't eradicated uh none of that stuff ha- that stuff happened to us but we are still survivors there are still people here um generations of generations of generations of our ancestors are still here fighting and and that's the importance of pain is to show how we can grow from that. No, 100%. It kind of brings me back to what we were talking about with Frank One Song 7, because, you know, the line that always hits me the hardest in that entire song is, we're stronger and we know it now. Yes, yes. And, you know, I think that is Indian country right now. You know, we know we're stronger now. And we know that we can survive, you know, we know that we can overcome. And I think that's what makes us so dangerous as Native people, because we know we have that power now. Right, right. And I agree with that. Yeah, like it's such it's such a powerful thing to be alive right now and in this moment where we are so empowered and we know that, you know, we that we can get through this. Like we, you know, even in this pandemic, you know, I was kind of cracking up because I do I teach a course called Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse Red Style. <laughs> and it's so funny because when the pandemic hit, it was like, all right, now we get to see. And everything that, you know, I was teaching through this, through this supposed, you know, apocalypse, you know, of how native people would be able to survive and how our knowledge would drive that survival, you know, is very true in this pandemic because, you know, one of the key points that I always point out is that we don't view each other as expendable. Um, We look out for each other, we protect each other and we try to bring each other up, you know? And I think that's one of the best things that I've seen throughout this pandemic. And the strongest truth is that, you know, almost all the natives that I know are doing everything they can to try and protect their community, to help them, um, to make sure that they have the resources that they need to stay safe and to safe well. And even, you know, when, you know, people are losing loved ones, you know, the community is still there to kind of uplift them and give them shelter and, you know, just, just help them navigate that grief, especially in this time when we can't do our traditional ceremonies, like we can't grieve, the way that we're supposed to be able to grieve. Um, So I think that's one of the most beautiful things that I see going on right now. Um, But yeah. And so, you know, for all you listeners out there, um, if you have a question that you'd like to ask you, please hit that request to speak button and we'll get you on. Even if you just want to add to the conversation or, you know, give a comment or encourage her, hit that request the speak button and we'll get you on and, you know, moving on to, you know, like one of my last questions here um, is what advice would you give to young native poets as they grow into their craft and start looking to publish? Well, the advice I would give them first is just to write, you know, put pen to paper, fingers to their keyboard and allow themselves to tell their story. Um, I would tell them, that their words hold immense power and to never give up. I would also tell them to write for themselves and not for pleasing others. You know, we sometimes we get so much in, if I write this, is somebody else going to want to read it? Don't worry about that. Just write. The words that we write are cleansing for our spirit 
and for our spirits healing and growth. And then for those who want to publish, uh, don't give up, you know, learn, uh, how to, um, be there for, um, for, for, uh, for yourself, grow, learn from those who have come before you read their work, um, be disciplined in your craft. That means, you know, go to school, uh, take a course, uh, learn everything you know about your craft. Just be knowledgeable on that. And then learn from rejection. We all get rejected. Um, it hurts the first few times, but don't take it personal. Uh, see why, ask them questions. I've always asked them, why didn't you, like, why did you reject my work? What can I do better? And then I, I take what they say and I implement that. And then I learn and I grow from that. Just keep the steps and keep moving forward. There's going to be somebody that's going to want to read your work and there's going to be somebody that's going to want to publish it, but you just gotta, you just gotta keep moving. It's a, it's a challenging, the publishing world is challenging. It definitely is. <laughs> and you know, one of the things too, I love that you said, don't take rejection personal. Um, I think failure is necessary for success. I agree. And I you can't succeed unless you fail because failure is where we learn what's working, what's not working. Um, it's where we learn our strengths, our weaknesses. And it also teaches us, you know, humbleness because yes. sometimes, you know, we get ourselves all jazzed up and we're thinking, Oh, this is the greatest thing I've ever done. You know, this is the greatest thing in the world, but you know, Sometimes we have a very biased perspective <laughs> of what it is we're doing. But at the same time, you know, it's also we're also our worst critics. Like, you know, we'll look at something and think this is absolute crap, but it could be absolute, you know, brilliant. You know, it's just it's it's just like, you know, it, it wherever our headspace is at at the time. But, you know, I I love failure. I'm oh, I like to say I'm always bouncing back from failure. Um because it's, you know, I think it's where we find like what we're really made of, but also whether or not we really want what we think we want as right. much as we want it. Right. Because I think that, um, what for like, we have to fight for what it is that we want. And if it's our passion and our career and that's what we want to do, then keep fighting for it. But we learn when we fail the first time, if we really are made of, what we think we're made of is it worth fighting for and if you realize okay i got to that point and i did what i wanted to do but it really isn't worth moving any forward i, I didn't like it the way i thought i'd like it that's what i did when i went to law school i my i my dream was to get in i got in then i realized i didn't like it i'm gonna go back eventually but i took a break because i realized it wasn't what i thought it was gonna be and so i had to take a different career path at that time and so sometimes it's okay to do that. Um, but then with writing, I mean, I've been doing this since I was 12 years old. So I've had thousands of rejections, but I still push forward because this is my dream and I'm what's what I'm passionate about. And um, it's worth it to me. It, it's because every single time I grow every and sometimes when I reach out to people like when with this book, this was just my um, this was my master's thesis. And I just asked somebody that I knew. Uh, to look it over and I said I just wanted you know to look it over to see if there's anything I can do because I'm looking to send it to publishing companies and then that's when they were like oh the um they were going to uh 
that I, I got a call back and they said, well, we're not even taking submissions right now, but we want to publish you. And then I was told about the award and that's when I applied for that. And so it's just, you know, sometimes you, sometimes it works out for you when you don't think it's going to work out because you weren't even looking for it. I've learned that. I've learned that quite a few times. Yeah, it's, and I think you kind of have to put yourself out there too. I think that's the other thing that um, is really hard for native people because we're so protective of what it is we create. Yeah. Because it's, because it's, because it's so personal, you know, <laughs> because it's so um, like, we're so tied to it. Like it's scary to let somebody else see it yes. or to share it because it, there is a fear that, you know, like, Oh, well, for me, there's the fear of like, Oh, what, what are they going to think of me now? Right. Like if I show this, this vulnerable part of myself, like, and also like, and how are people going to use that against me in some way? Like, you know, there's a lot of little fears that keep you from wanting to share those, like those hidden parts of you. But I feel it's those hidden parts that are probably the most beautiful, you know, the, yeah. the art that we create, the, the songs that we write, you know, just all these things that come from you know deep within us like these are the things that are an essential part of who we are right it's scary but i think you know we need to be able to put ourselves out there because whether or not we realize it like that work like what we write you know the songs that we sing you know these things that you know for us are we're just thinking in terms of ourselves you know our lifelines for other people just to, you know, it lets them know that they're not alone or they can find something that they relate to. And they, you know, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, you know, I can heal too, or I can do this too. And it creates like a chain reaction of growth, of healing and just joy, which we need more of in Indian country. I agree. I totally agree with you there. Yeah, but it's, you know, I, I mean, I love that we're having this moment now where we have like so many Native writers, so many Native artists and musicians who are just, you know, coming up and creating these spaces for themselves and, you know, absolutely winning those awards because I am living for that. It brings me so much joy to see other Natives who are, you know, getting the accolades, like getting their flowers now and not, you know, after they've passed on or not ever getting those flowers, you know, that they so rightfully deserve. Like, I love that we're seeing Natives be celebrated right now and having the opportunity to share more of their work on a wider platform. I and I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I just, uh, it wasn't hard to find someone to do my cover, you know, and she was California Indian as well. Tiffany Adams want to give her a shout out and she's an amazing an amazing artist and she she brought what I wanted to life on my cover you know um and it's it's beautiful and um her I've just been seeing so many more native um artists you know creating things you know we've seen jewelry for so long but I've, I've seen more artists doing more paintings and 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 drawings and it's it's um it, it's it's amazing um 
to see that we're putting ourselves out there more. Absolutely. And we're coming up on time. So I'd like to thank you for joining me today. And also, could you let our listeners know where they can find you online and where they can pick up your book? Yes, um, you can find me um, on Facebook under Yulu Uish, Y-U-L-U space E-W-I-S. You can find me on Twitter at Yulu Uish one or on Instagram at Yulu Uish the Storyteller. Um, and you can find my book on Amazon um, and Barnes and Noble. It's um, Ope apostrophe O-P-E. Uh, or you can DM me and um, on any of those platforms uh, for a signed copy. And you, I'll send them one out to you personally. Okay, awesome. Well, I'd like to thank you again for being here with me. And also to the listeners, thank you all for joining in. And hold on, before we go, it looks like we have somebody here. Hi, Kim. Oh, I think she's here. Kim, oh, she's- are you She's there. I think she's just muted right now. Kim, you have to unmute your mic. There you are. Technology. I appreciate younger people. Um, (laughs) I was just going to say, even though we are not technically open for submissions for first books, always nwcadirector at gmail.com. If someone's got a new manuscript out there and they haven't published a book yet, either in poetry or prose, uh, let us know. Drop us a line. We'll give it a look. And that Painted Horse Press is one of our official NWCA presses. And that's where our winner, our proud winner of the first book award, Yula Lewis, uh, published uh, her first book. So just letting everybody know if you got stuff out there, even though we're not officially open for submissions, uh, we're always looking for good Native writers with their first book and trying to help them get out there. Thank you for listening, Kim. It's good to see you on. Good to see you too. I know it. It's good to hear your Oklahoma accent. <laughs> I I miss it so much. <laughs> no, no, no matter how hard I work to make it go away, it's still there. It's still there. Oh, I've worked so hard to make mine go away, but every time I re- I'm around Oklahomans, it comes back, and then I have to struggle <laughs> to get rid of it again. <laughs> well, we've, we've sent Nia out to California, so there's more and more Okies out there. Maybe it'll get normalized. I know. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. All right. And to all our listeners, thank you all for listening tonight and joining in. Um, I really love doing these spaces and I hope that you're enjoying them too. We're here every Monday and Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific. And until Friday, I will see you all later and everyone have a good evening.